All right, the rest of the children, you are dismissed to go to children's ministry. Well, good morning and happy Father's Day to all our dads here. Uh, let's go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 5, where we'll be for this morning. You know, the benefit of expositional preaching or going through a book of the Bible and letting it supply what we hear on Sunday mornings is that it takes you to texts and to topics that may not be your first choice for a message. You know, perhaps not many of us were showing up to church last Sunday just eager to hear a sermon about how God, you know, hardens hearts and kills firstborn and assaults his prophet because he failed to circumcise his son. You know, that might not exactly line up with our felt needs for the week. How does that help me with my anxiety or my relational problems? But that is where Exodus took us, and there was something that we needed to see. Now, if you weren't able to make it last week, uh, you might be scratching your head or pulling out your iPhone to download the podcast of that message, uh, which wouldn't be a bad idea. But that's the premise behind expositional preaching. God knows what we need better than we do, and he's given us a book. And so the only authority, the only relevance that any one of us who stands in this pulpit has is that we are bringing you a message from on high. We are bringing the revealed thoughts of God. And by the way, those thoughts are not privately accessed by us. They are right there on the page for your eyes to see. All we want to do is open up this book and tell you what's on the inside. So here we are on Father's Day, and we're going to go with where Exodus takes us next, but I think we'll find something here that'll be a blessing to all of us and to fathers in particular. So we'll start by reading the beginning of Exodus 5, and then we're going to zoom out and uh, discuss some things in the larger section before and after it. So Exodus 5 Verse 1, afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall still impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Let's pray. Lord, we believe these are true words and therefore they deserve our attention. But more than that, Lord, they, they deserve our belief. They deserve our faith. So, Lord, help us this morning. Lord, help us to receive every good thing you've intended for us through your word. Lord, will we mix in our trust, behold you and believe you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our, our culture invites us to find significance in so many things, and that's everything from the kind of car you drive and the house you own to the number of followers you have on social media. 
Now, that's something that didn't matter to pretty much anyone on the planet about 10 years ago, but now marketing books are being written about how to extend your followers' platform. And the search for significance can get taken over into the category of parenting as well. You know, there's pressure to be a successful parent with various competing theories on what success in parenting looks like. Uh, There's the whole debate over free-range parenting or how much of a protective influence parents should be for their kids. And this, like pretty much everything else, gets hashed out on Facebook uh, with one parent posting the latest article with, you know, the the newest safety and health concerns and another parent commenting, you know, I don't get what the big deal is. I just let my kids walk to the playground and drink out of the garden hose. I think moms in particular, they, they, they face the pressure of comparison, especially with the whole world of Pinterest. All you have to do is pull out your app and discover all the ways that you're not as creative, not as organized, not as educational as other moms are for their kids, or at least the published versions of themselves. You know, so that's what it looks like to throw a birthday party. I guess ice cream sandwiches and pin the tail on the donkey no longer cut it. And fathers can face burdens in other areas as well. Related to who we are as providers, whether or not you can deliver at work, your success in your career makes a statement about you, how effectively we're connecting with our kids, drawing them out, entering their world, whether or not they, they feel near or distant to us right now, whether we feel like we're leading well in the home and other settings And much of this is good, and and as we'll see, the Bible actually demands some things of us in some of these categories. But at the end of the day, what is the most important thing about you? What determines significance? What's going to define you as a person or as a father? Well, there's a classic quote from A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy that reads, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And and we find this emphasis in our text this morning, right? In verse 2, Pharaoh asks this penetrating question, who is the Lord? Now, there's obviously a taunting tone in his voice when he says it, but but that's a question that really summarizes this section and, and really the entire book of Exodus That's the question that Moses essentially asked in chapter 3 when he said, you know, who should I tell them is sending me? And as we'll see in chapter 6, it's one that God answers again. But, But that's the design of this book, to introduce us to God. And fathers and everyone else here, how you answer that question is the most important thing about you. And it will have everything to do with whether you continue when you reach the end of our limits. Our text this morning directs us towards some things that we need to see about God and how He works. Things that are to be defining features of our lives. And we might even say that it gives us some God-centered convictions for fatherhood. There are some real and challenging things that God calls us to and that we must be faithful to pursue. But if you try to chase after these things without an accurate picture of God, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. And so, our passage teaches us that God calls us to family faithfulness. God sends us to immovable circumstances and God provides us with sovereign sufficiency. So first, God... God calls us to family faithfulness. And I want to begin by revisiting a passage that Pastor Keith discussed toward the end of his message last week. You know, if one sermon on this was more than you'd expect to hear, well, now we're back for more. So flip back to chapter 4, verse 24. And at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. 
Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right, the Bible is wonderfully strange. Uh, not every verse is one that you'd put in a Hallmark card for Father's Day or, you know, print on a coffee mug with pictures of naked baby cherubs. Or I guess the, uh, you know, the digital age equivalent would be text with some sort of low-resolution background image. Uh, but the Bible isn't just a nice book. It will shock you and surprise you. As we saw last week, it will offend you. It will constantly challenge you, and it will help you to see that God is so much more than our small expectations permit Him to be. That's because the Bible's not a book of isolated insights and nice sayings. Like Jesus, it is the Word of God with flesh and bone. It's revealing to us the story of a God who is on the move who is exercising his sovereignty as he rescues his people. And so our place is not to worship God as we'd like him to be, but to worship him as he's revealed himself to be. And here we find God about to kill the dude he's sending to Egypt to get Israel out of slavery. Now think about it. Moses has survived the edict of Pharaoh that all the Hebrew boys would be thrown into the Nile. He was hidden in a basket. Only it seems to be taken out by God when he's on his way to do the very thing he was spared for. And all because of a small matter of obedience. Unless obedience isn't a small matter. You know, it's easy to underestimate the importance of certain factors Uh, Chuck Swindoll tells a story back in 1958, a small community in northeastern Pennsylvania built a little red brick building that was going to be their police department, fire department, and city hall all in one. And they were really proud of this new building uh, because the community had given sacrificially to make sure it happened. And almost all of the town's residents showed up for the ribbon-cutting ceremony. But they soon began to notice that there were cracks that were forming in the side of the building. And then the windows wouldn't shut all the way. And the doors weren't closing properly. And it seemed like the floor was shifting and the roof started to leak. And eventually they needed to evacuate the building to their embarrassment. Well, there they found out that blasts from a nearby mining area were slowly destroying the building. Now, even though you, you couldn't see it or feel it from the surface, down beneath there were small shifts and changes that were causing the whole foundation to crack. And disobedience can be like that. All right, this isn't just a weird passage in the Old Testament. This account is telling us that our personal faithfulness and integrity are a big deal. They influence everything else. It's not just Moses' public ministry and leadership that mattered. He's about to take the people of Israel out of Egypt and bring them to Mount Sinai to walk in God's covenant. And yet in his own family, he's ignored key mandates of that covenant. There was a disconnect between what Moses was sent to do and what he made a priority to fulfill at home. He neglected God's commandments, and he put himself and his family at risk. And this is a deeply sobering text. Men, your faithfulness matters. Do you permit yourself to have areas of life in which you just don't have to do the right thing? Maybe that's your finances. You let yourself be less than honest when it comes to income taxes, or you've excused yourself from the whole category of tithing and giving to the kingdom of God. Or maybe the area of purity. Uh, You treat where you browse online like it's some sort of separate aspect of life, and that as long as you clear out your internet history, you'll be okay. What about unforgiveness? 
They're people that you are holding hostage to their failure. Maybe that's a family member or someone in the church or your spouse. And you sit in sermons and and you read Bible verses about how we're called to forgive, but you don't budge to let that person out of the cage of your resentment. And you've excused yourself from having to do anything differently. Well, the God who mercifully chooses and redeems us is also concerned about our obedience. And as we see here, he sometimes takes drastic measures to bring us in line with his purposes. But why does Exodus highlight this issue of circumcision in particular? Well, because by ignoring this, Moses neglected the very symbol that tied Israel to God. It was the covenant uh, with Abraham that supplied the whole reason the Exodus is happening to begin with. Right? Exodus 2, verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God, he's keeping his promises to Abraham as he redeems this nation from Egypt. And God had already made clear what keeping their end of the covenant included. Genesis 17, verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So by ignoring the covenant sign, Moses was making the implicit statement that they were people who did not need the redemptive intervention of God. By forfeiting obedience, he was forfeiting the blessing. J. Alcmatir says, Covenant signs express covenant promises to covenant people. Did all this not matter to Moses? Did he not need the assurance of personal transformation, family prosperity, spiritual security, and territorial possession? Why, they were the very things he needed more than anything else in his hazardous enterprise. But he had overlooked them as if promises had not been made, and as if he could afford to scout them, this is why disobedience is such a serious matter. It is acting as if we had no need of God, His grace, and His pledges. In other words, it is nothing short of enacted atheism. See, circumcision was designed to highlight the faithfulness and redemption of God. It it, it defined who you were in relation to God, which is the most important thing about you. And it was Moses' responsibility to impart this to his sons. And so this passage shows us that personal obedience matters, and the transfer of promises matters. Look at Psalm 78, 2 in your notes. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders He's done. We're called to transfer to the coming generation the story of redemption, the wondrous works that God has done. And the New Testament equivalent of this is to give them the gospel. And this is something that God has called fathers to do, to help their children see that this, is, this world that we live in and all of its wonder is the creation of a real and living God. To help them understand that we need to be saved because we've disregarded God's law. We've not loved Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength to point them to the provision that's in Christ who accomplished what we could never do. To help them understand the Bible and to teach them to follow God's word and all its implications in their thinking and actions. Fathers, 
Do you do this? And do you do it again and again? Does it show up in your family in some intentional way? You know, there's a lot of emphasis today about giving intentional time to your family and kids. And that's a good thing. You know, today's generation of parents, uh, you know, we've helpfully adjusted some tendencies of the previous generation maybe to get absorbed in in work and even at, at church to the neglect of time at home. And that's helpful. But, you know, now I think the weakness is to define time with family as everything from a long list of sports activities to sitting at home watching Netflix. And, and you know, those things, uh, they're enjoyable and they do contribute something. But apparently, family faithfulness means something more than this. And I'm, I, I can imagine that Moses' sons were clothed and well-fed. But evidently, that wasn't enough. God calls fathers to give more to their families than just their time. He's called them to give them the gospel and to train them in all of its implications. Ephesians 6 verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. John MacArthur has a helpful uh, book titled, Being a Dad Who Leads. And in it, he writes, that you are to teach your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord means first and foremost that you must be an evangelist in your home. Your kids need to be taught that they are sinners who are alienated from God and that they will feel impulses that are wrong and dishonoring to God. Your children need to know that because they are sinners, they are destined for eternal punishment unless they put their trust in Jesus Christ and their sins are forgiven. Only then can they live with the hope of a future in heaven. So as a parent, your first task is to pursue vigorously the eternal salvation of your children. Now, that's clearly a responsibility that's given to parents. It's implicit in this text and it's all over the Bible. And yet there is a tension here. And I feel it even as I read this quote, because there's no button that you can press to guarantee the salvation of your kids. Whether you have five-year-olds or 25-year-olds, changing their hearts is something beyond the reach of your power. So God calls us to faithfulness in our responsibility while relying on His ability to accomplish the work John Piper says, I define spiritual leadership as knowing where God wants people to be and taking the initiative to use God's methods to get them there in reliance on God's power. And we need both sides of this. Fathers, you need to know where God wants your family to be. You need to know that. And you need to rely on God's power when you take two steps in that direction and hit a wall. So that brings us to our second point, that God sends us to immovable circumstances. Well, chapter 4 ends with a promising note. Moses has arrived in Egypt and brought the message to Israel. And so verse 31, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he, he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So chapter 4 concludes... And things are looking good, you know. Moses has met a people who are eager to believe and respond and receive the deliverance of God. There's anticipation. We're about to be rescued. The difficulty's about to come to an end. Put down your work. Don't make another brick. Moses is going to get us out of this place. And yet things only get worse. There's a glad expectation followed by a crushing setback. Chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? 
I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. What a statement that is. Get back to your burdens. Return to the feature of life that weighs down upon you the most. Can you imagine the disillusionment here? Of course, Pharaoh's resistance is stunning, but not surprising. You know, we've been tracking with the book up to this point, and we already knew this would be the response. The Lord had already told Moses that Pharaoh's heart would be hard. And mystery of mysteries, that God himself has hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the disappointment is no less real. Perhaps you confront hearts that appear to be hard. Maybe you have grown children. Uh, maybe you, you came to know the Lord later in life. And throughout the years you have hoped and hoped that they would experience the same thing. But up to this point they've just not cared. Maybe there are family members who are just unresponsive to you right now. We're about to find Moses going back to the people of Israel to be met by their complaints uh, grumbling and questioning of his leadership. Nobody in your world does that, right? <laughs> Moses confronts an unyielding resistance here, but then the situation itself gets more complicated. Verse 5, Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of the bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let Heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Now, in this section, the Hebrew text has seven references to hard labor. It just puts it right at the center. And by the way, it's, it's interesting how much detail Exodus 5 contains about brick making in Egypt. If you're wanting to know how that works, you know, uh, the process of that and, and how uh, slaves had to meet quotas each day and that they would work under fellow slaves who served as foremen who would then report to the Egyptians. These, these are just the kind of incidental details in the narrative that highlight the reliability of the biblical account. It's the kind of stuff that somebody who's writing centuries later and in another nation, as some skeptics would want us to believe, just wouldn't have available to him. But more important than the structures of the labor were the conditions in which the slaves worked. They, they were in the hot Egyptian sun all day uh, with temperatures sometimes over 100 degrees and no hat for their head and only the small little apron uh, for their bodies. And one wealthy Egyptian uh, described for his son the experience of the bricklayers and he said that their kidneys suffer from being out in the sun their hands are torn to ribbons from the work, and they have to knead all sorts of muck. And it was common for the slaves to die of dehydration or heat stroke. And that's what it's like before Pharaoh demanded that they make their bricks without straw. It's simply an irrational workload. Meet your same quota, but without any resources provided. It's just impossible. But you know, tyrannical leaders are not really known for making reasonable demands. Uh, back in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, Joseph Stalin's name was mentioned at a provincial meeting, and this caused there to be a standing ovation. But then that created a little bit of a problem because nobody wanted to be the first person to sit back down. And finally, an elderly man couldn't take it anymore. He was getting too tired and returned to his seat. And so they noted his name and arrested him the next day. Sometimes life just doesn't play fair. 
Now, we probably don't experience anything like the Hebrew slaves did here. But you know what it's like to get kicked when you're down. You know, I was talking to a dad in the church last week, and you'll know who you are. And I asked him how he was doing. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm blessed, but it seems like every time I turn around, I hit a wall. We've got car issues happening right now. My dishwasher's out, and my wife just informed me that the dryer's making strange noises. Any of you guys can relate to that? Sometimes it seems like your only option is to make bricks without straw. And household appliances can be the least of your worries. You know, there are situations that we face that no matter how many times we turn them over in our minds, they seem unsolvable. And fathers in particular bear the weight of these. You, you feel it as a dad. You, you stare at the need, and there seems to be no clear way around it. You can't find a way to make the finances work. You add up the numbers from different angles, and the bottom line just doesn't turn out like you'd hope. There are relationships that seem like they just can't be fixed. You feel like you're losing your wife or your kids. Their, their hearts are, are growing distant from you. And it seems like all you can do is watch while some mysterious hand pulls them away. You've had persistent problems with your health. You've gone back to the doctor again and again to get various treatments. And when it seems like you've made an improvement, new issues are discovered. You're just sent back to your burdens by Pharaoh. Well, in this chapter, Moses must now face a frustrated people. Israel's situation is worse than when he arrived. Verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And as they came out from Pharaoh, they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Ever feel like that's the result of your efforts? Try to do the right thing and it just backfires? Uh, Kent Hughes writes, these kinds of things happen all the time. A woman refuses a man who's not a Christian. Now she's still waiting for the right man, but no one ever calls. An employee refuses to work on Sundays. Not sure how much of that's happening today. And he gets fired three months later. A mother does everything she can to raise her children right and then watches them squander her love by turning away from God. A pastor starts to teach the Bible, but rather than growing, his congregation starts to shrink. It happens often. A Christian does what God calls him to do, and it makes things worse. Such developments make us start to wonder if we did the right thing, and maybe even to wonder if God cares what happens to us. Now, here's the irony. You know, we saw in the first point that disobedience leads to failure, but apparently the converse isn't necessarily true, right? You, you can't automatically reason back from failure to disobedience. Sometimes you do the right thing and it still seems like everything falls apart. Obeying God doesn't guarantee success, at least not as we tend to define it. You know, some commentators try to find fault with Moses here. They might highlight subtle differences between what God commanded Moses to say and what Moses actually said to Pharaoh. And, and they explain Pharaoh's response in, in part because of Moses' failed diplomacy. Maybe there's something to that. But God never rebukes Moses for that in this text. And we've seen from the killer in the night passage, we just look like that God's not reluctant to point out Moses' botch-up jobs you know, it's tempting to trace Pharaoh's resistance back to something that Moses didn't do right. But the equation doesn't always work like that. And here's the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel. You can be faithful to do exactly what God has called you to do and still fall flat on your face. At least, that's what it looks like. 
You know, Doug Wilson has quoted Herbert Schlossberg as saying that the kingdom of God moves from triumph to triumph with all of them cleverly disguised as disasters. Now, sometimes that disguise is a little too clever because right now all Moses can see is the disaster. Verse 22, then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Why did you send me to this, God? Surely this is a mistake. Surely either you've got the wrong plan or you got the wrong guy. Something about this is messed up. Well, the Lord doesn't really answer Moses' question here. Instead, he chooses to answer the question that Moses failed to ask because the real issue wasn't who was Moses. The issue is who is God? Who is the Lord who has sent Moses to this task? And so here's his response. Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Shortly after our son was born last year, our daughter, who was almost two at the time, pretty much every day she would turn to him and shake his hand and say, nice to meet you. She saw the comedy in it, I guess. Uh, but, you know, as a pastor, I get the privilege of meeting people that I've already met before, but I'm introducing myself to, and they're always faithful to remind me of that. Uh, but throughout the Bible, God has a habit of reintroducing himself to his people. And that's because we have a habit of forgetting who he is. And here, God turns to Moses and he says, nice to meet you. I don't know if you knew this, but I'm God. And here he draws attention to two things, his plan and his name. First, he says that in his plan, not only is he going to let Israel go, but when God is through with him, Pharaoh will actually drive them out of Egypt. Pharaoh will be desperate to be rid of them. He won't want them in this land any longer. That's how powerful this deliverance is going to be. You see, all along, God has had a purpose for Pharaoh's resistance. He wants to demonstrate something to his people and to show something forth on the global theater of the surrounding nations as he brings these people out of Egypt. Who's the God that's going to lead us around in a wilderness and establish us as a new nation? He's the God who just squashed this dude and all of his hard-heartedness and resistance. God wants to press the play button on that drama. John Calvin comments, It was indeed possible for God to overwhelm Pharaoh at once by a single nod. Wouldn't we like him to do that in our life? So that he should even fall down dead. At the side of Pharaoh, at the side of Moses, you know, dads, don't you wish your kids, you know, you could generate that kind of respect in them? You just stand there, you just command, and it happens. That's the kind of authority you exercise at work. Uh, it doesn't always work like that. He chose more clearly to lay open his power. For if Pharaoh had either voluntarily yielded or had been overcome without effort, the glory of the victory would not have been so illustrious. God wished to accustom his servants in all ages to patience, lest they should faint in their minds if he does not immediately answer their prayers. And look, we're the iPhone generation. We don't do well with this. And at every moment, relieve them from their distress. 
All right, here's a thought. Might God be up to something that we simply don't have all the information available to us to understand? Might he do some things that if he waited to ask our permission first, they would never happen, and yet when we see them completed, we wouldn't have it any other way? Might he be doing 10,000 things right now? Might there be 10,000 good reasons? He's keeping you right where you are, where everything inside of you just wants to escape. You want to hit the eject button, you're, you're pounding it again and again in your prayers before God. And he's saying, just wait, it's almost there. You don't know, but this is what I'm doing. Listen, if you're going to survive when you're thrown against the immovable realities of life, you're going to need to be convinced of some things about God. You need to have a theological backbone and convictions running through your veins, a, a functional doctrine that has been developed before the day that you encounter disaster. Well, the Lord also reminds Moses of his name, which is another way of highlighting his character and capabilities. He says, in the past, your fathers, they knew me as El Shaddai, God Almighty, all right? That, that just kind of says it all. But now he's going to one-up that in the revelation of himself. Now they, I fully revealed all the implications of my name, Yahweh. Or in your English Bibles, in all capital letters, the Lord. And one name underscores that God is sovereign in every circumstance. And the other, that he is sufficient in every circumstance. He is God Almighty. He doesn't have any limits to his power. He never comes to the end of himself. He's never constrained by external circumstances. They never stay his hand or cause him to reconsider his plan. All he has to do is survey his will and then accomplish exactly that with delight and ease. Our God is in the heavens, Psalm 115 says, and he does everything that he pleases. He doesn't just have to play the hand that he's dealt. The entire deck is at his disposal and beyond that. He, he can take a childless Abraham and turn, sorry, Abram and turn him into Abraham, the father of many nations. He will soon bring Israel to the brink of the Red Sea. And just when it looks like they're cornered up against the waters by an encroaching Egyptian army, he's going to make a way through the sea. When they're thirsting in the desert, he is going to take the most unlikely source. He's going to grab a rock. And from that, he's going to supply drink for his people. He's able to provide for them in the most unyielding circumstances. He is God Almighty. And he is Yahweh. Name appears seven times in this one paragraph. He is the great I am. He just is. He's like the bush, he's burning hot but not consumed, always existing in inexhaustible life, never wearied, never wasting energy, never requiring anything outside of himself. He has no needs. And by the way, that's not us. <laughs> We are limited and dependent. We are needy. Leave us alone in a vacuum and we will die of lack of oxygen before dying of starvation. And you know what? God made us like that on purpose. So don't be surprised when you confront this about yourself. Moses, of course you can't do this. Of course, you can't just force your way through this situation and change this man's heart. 
dads, of course you can't do this. That's not a design flaw. That's the feature. That's how it's supposed to be. It's how it's supposed to be so that we would look to the God that we so desperately need. Eric, bro, you can go ahead and come back up, man. Ken Hughes writes this. Exodus is a God-centered book with a God-centered message that teaches us to have a God-centered life. Whatever problems we have, whatever difficulties we face, the most important thing is to know who God is. We are called to place our trust in the one who says, I am the Lord. When there is trouble in the family, and we don't know how to bring peace, he says, I am the Lord. When nothing seems to go right, and it is not certain how things will ever work out, even then, he says, I am the Lord. Now, he says that, and amazingly, that's not all he says. In this text, there are seven statements of I will. Look at verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with the great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The one who calls himself the I am is the one who's able to say, I will. I will do it. I will accomplish it, and there is nothing that can stay my hand. And so, we must be faithful. We must obey. And I hope this word challenges us to that. And dads in particular, there, there are real and sobering responsibilities that you face. And I hope you're informed by God's word as to what those are. Don't just download the script from our culture of what it means to be a father. God gives us priorities. God gives us mandates. And they are tall orders. We better know that. But there is a God who decisively accomplishes every good intention he has. And you better know that. It will be the most important thing about you. How do you respond to something like this? What do you do with this sermon? Well, you respond in faith. <laughs> you believe it. You take the word and you mix in the ingredient of trust. And that's how it's designed to have its effect in us. So let's do this. Let's go ahead and have all the, dans, the dads in our midst take a stand. I'm going to take a moment to pray for you and pray for us. But let's not let it just be that. This is not just a, a time to receive and disengage. Uh, this, is, this is a time for you to pray. This is a time for you to exercise faith in this moment, for you to call these things about God to mind, and you to believe them, you to believe them for your family and for the needs that you face, and you ask them to be true. So let's, families, let's gather around the fathers uh, near your row, and let's turn to God. Father, what a privilege it is to know 
you as our Father through Christ. Lord, many of us believe we have impressive and capable dads. But for others here, Father's Day might be a a day for grief, a day of confusion because we've, we've not seen in a father everything that it was intended to be. But God, we look to you and, and the God of Exodus is the God who is our father. He is the God who cares about our needs. Lord, all of us here, dads in particular, Lord, we, we know what it's like to be at the end of ourselves. I know what it's like to feel like I've exhausted every resource I have. I just got nothing left to give. But that's not an experience that you have. You are omni-capable. Thank you that that's who we believe in. So, Lord, would we transfer our trust away from the needs, away from the circumstances we face, and place it in you, deposit our faith in the God who is the Lord. Lord, would we be fathers who engage in a lifelong pursuit of discovering this about you, who know you. That's what's most important. That is the greatest statement over our lives. We know the Lord. And so, Lord, bring encouragement. Lord, continue to bring relief uh, for needs that we face. And Lord, bring us courage, Lord, to be faithful. We just want to be faithful. We want to serve and represent you well to our families. So help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Happy Father's Day. You guys have a great time with your families today. We'll see you next week. Uh, There is a cookie available for all the dads, so on your way out, grab a special Sophie's Sweet cookie. Happy Father's Day.